This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 44 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we examine the Western Cape's infection and mortality rates and compare them with experiences elsewhere and consider whether that's what the rest of the country is in for. After schools open today, we take a close look at how this action impacted the spread of the coronavirus in other countries. There's highlights from a fascinating interview with Stellenbosch University's epidemiologist, Dr. Joe Barnes, who warns against believing Pollyanna forecasts for South Africa We visit Madrid, which reopened restaurants and cafes today, and take heart from experiences elsewhere in Europe, where life is slowly returning to normal. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's mortalities from the coronavirus have now risen to over a thousand, with four in every five of these in the Western Cape, the national epicenter. Graphs published by Johns Hopkins University includes the country now amongst those where the pandemic is accelerating, with South Africa's five-day moving average of confirmed new cases increasing at the same rate as in the global hotspots of Brazil, Chile, Mexico and India. South Africa's total cases are now close to 50,000, again with the vast majority of them in the Western Cape, whose infection rates are in line with the peak in London, but well below the U.S. epicenter of New York. The credibility of South Africa's official numbers is very high, says Discovery Health's Ron Whelan, as they are mirrored by internal data from Discovery's own client base. More from Whelan on what the country's infection rates are telling us coming up. In this episode, globally there have now been more than 7 million coronavirus cases with just over 400,000 deaths. The USA at 112,500 deaths is far and away the hardest hit nation, but with daily mortalities at 373, it has now been surpassed by Chile, which recorded almost 650 deaths on Sunday, and Brazil at 542. The two South American countries, their neighbor Colombia and nearby Mexico, are still on a rising mortality curve along with India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Indonesia. At the other end, the Johns Hopkins graphics show pronounced declining trend in the UK, Italy, France and Canada. New York, the US's largest city and COVID-19 epicenter, began reopening today after more than two months of lockdown. The construction, agriculture, manufacturing and wholesale trades were allowed to start trading again, with retailers also allowed to offer curbside and in-store pickups. The Wall Street Journal reports that 16,000 non-essential retail businesses and 3,700 manufacturing companies reopened today, but with all of them insisting on mandatory face masks for staff and temperature checks. 
Asset management company 91 and private equity firm Ethos today launched a 10 billion rand fund to help high-quality, medium-sized South African businesses starved of capital by the COVID-19 crisis. This new fund focuses on those companies with turnovers north of 300 million which need money to expand or to overcome short-term liquidity challenges. 91's chief commercial officer, John Green, told BizNews today that the South African institutional investors that he'd approached ahead of the launch have been largely supportive of the project. An application has also been made to the authorities to enable retail investors to participate in a long-term fund, which will be structured just like a closed unit trust. Ron Whelan is the Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health, and we've been looking, Ron, uh, off air at the infection rates. Let's start in the Western Cape, because there's lots of confusion in South Africa. We've got this one province which looks well like it's the New York of our country. No, I mean, unfortunately, we're not New York. Uh, New York certainly had an outbreak much more severe than uh, the Western Cape. That's not to say that we're not... Uh, headed towards a, a new New York trajectory. New York is obviously far ahead of the Western Cape in terms of uh, the progression of the outbreak. We'll probably look here closer to, to London you know, at this stage of the game in terms of prevalence. In fact, you know, as of uh, this week, um, the, the prevalence, case prevalence in the Western Cape has just gone past where London was. So case prevalence in the Western Cape tracking, I think, at, 104, uh, sorry, at 430 per 100,000. Um, London peaked at you know, just over 350 you know, per 100,000. So we've just you know, gone past London. New York still sits north of 2,000 um, you know, cases per 100,000. So we're, we're not quite in New York terrain yet, um, but certainly not out of the woods yet either. Are you seeing any instance uh, or any evidence that Cape, the Western Cape might be flattening? No evidence at all at, uh, at this stage, unfortunately, Alec. Uh, yeah, the picture doesn't, doesn't look good. Um, in fact, our discovery numbers validate you know, the national numbers. So we're seeing you know, similar trajectories across your know, discovery membership base in the Western Cape as well, what we're seeing in the, the provincial statistics. I think you know, as of, um, you know, early, you know, as of the weekend, the Western Cape now up to 32,000 32, infections, um, you know, tracking towards you know, over 800 your know, deaths. Um, we obviously have the, uh, the added challenge in the Western Cape now that um, we have a testing squeeze. So there's a, a new protocol in the Western Cape that only allows your testing for individuals you know, over the age of 55, um, for you know, healthcare workers and you know, high, higher risk populations, which um, would suggest that you know, some of our Western Cape numbers you know, going forward will, be, will likely be uh, underreported. Um, yeah, so uh, the the curves continue to climb. Yeah, the curve the curve we're we're tracking you know, most closely at uh, Discovery when it comes to Western Cape. You're bearing in mind we do have an office down in the Western Cape where, where the vast majority of our people are are work from home. But yeah, we do have a a few people in the office, so we're watching the situation closely. The number we we track closely is called the attack rate, or the number of new infections per hundred thousand population per day. Um, the attack rate in the Western Cape, just to help you calibrate at the moment, is sitting at 21. So 21 new infections per 100,000 per population per day. 
South Africa's attack rate nationally is three per 100,000 per population per day. So that allows you to kind of calibrate on a population basis. The, the Western Cape outbreak is seven times more severe than uh, yeah, the South African outbreak at, at this stage. The other interesting thing about the calibration on the attack rate is that European countries, and you'll remember when we spoke, uh, when we've spoken over the last year, two or three months, European countries peaked at a, an infection attack, attack rate of 10 per 100,000 uh, uh, per population year per day. So, yeah, the Western Cape numbers are now double where the uh, European peaks were, were happening. And in fact, yeah, the Western Cape yeah, rates are looking comparable to some of our South American counterparts. So, um, yeah, Chile sits yeah, a little bit above that at 23 per 100,000 per population per day. Uh, Brazil is tracking towards, I think, yeah, 16 was the, the latest number that I saw in yeah, Brazil. Wow. So those are really concerning numbers. If you uh, look at the way that the graphs have been going in Brazil and Chile and uh, Mexico, countries like that, is it likely then that if this has happened in the Western Cape that the rest of the country will follow? I mean, it's always been hard to predict exactly how how these um, uh, outbreaks play out you know, when you – Cast your mind back to how Italy played out. Italy, it was largely um, you know, circumscribed around the Vergano region up in you know, north, northern Italy, so you know, um, a county in and around you know, Milan. Um, you know, the UK was you know, largely concentrated around London, you know, um, New York, obviously. So the US obviously around New York, you know, China around you know, Wuhan. So I think there is a, a chance that you know, this you know, remains you know, largely circumscribed to um, you know, a particular region region in South Africa. At the same time, I think yeah, there definitely are risks that uh, it, you know, we see the same um, numbers play out in other provinces. You must know to be probably a Gauteng and you know, KZN, and we certainly are seeing some early evidence of growing outbreaks in, in those areas now as well. So what do we, what do we have to look for into the future to see whether or when this pandemic might start coming under control. Some people, like the Institute of Race Relations and uh, the actuaries at Panda, are suggesting that we'll have hit the worst this month already. Yeah, our actuarial modelling suggests that you know, the, the peak of the epidemic is still around you know, September, you know, end of August, September in South Africa. And, um, you know, that hasn't changed over the last you know, month or two. And, you know, actually are increasingly comfortable that that looks like you know, around about the peak in South Africa. Western Cape, obviously, a little bit before that. Um, you know, some of the other provinces a little bit you know, after that. Uh, but we got no you know, indication to suggest that you know, we'll be peaking you know, within the next you know, two or three weeks. Um, you know, certainly not on, on, our, on our numbers. Um, I think in terms of what what, what to do, um, I think yeah, two two things. One is you know, we all have an obligation to continue all of the preventive actions around your hand washing and um, you know, cough uh, sanitization and your know, mask wearing, um, social distancing. So we have your know, personal obligations despite our move down to you know, at level three. I think in addition to that, you know, and secondly, what uh, is really proving to have been successful in the countries that have had success in the epidemic is strong uh, contact tracing infrastructure. So there's been a lot of talk about the, the success of Vietnam, for instance, over the last you know, week or so, 
Vietnam's a population of over 90 million people. They haven't had a single death as a result of COVID. The infections are still south of the 1,000 infections that are countrywide. And, and Vietnam doesn't have the resources of many European countries and US countries. And what, but what Vietnam does have is a, a fantastic uh, contact tracing you know, infrastructure and team. You know, so as soon as there's any case you know, that's identified, the contact tracing teams moving quickly, identify cases quickly, get them into you know, isolation and quarantine you know, quickly. And they've done a spectacular job of this over the last year, two months. And when you look at you know, other countries globally, uh, you know, South Korea, same thing, amazing contact trace testing and contact tracing you know, infrastructure. And in fact, Germany's success is largely driven by uh, amazing contact tracing. Um, you know, they, they have you know, thousands of people who get out their screen, they test, they've got a big contact tracing infrastructure. As soon as they've got any infections, they circumscribe those infections, get people into quarantine and isolation, and as a result have been able to you know, flatten their curve. Um, we're running out of time in, in South Africa. We've got to get that infrastructure up, up and running as quickly as possible. And you know, we certainly are, are working with some of the, some some of the provinces at the moment to help them figure out how to accelerate you know, some of the contact tracing so that they're able to flatten those curves as well. So, where are we standing in that uh, area of activity? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's two two aspects to that. Um, there's the work that uh, government is doing, and there's the work that uh, the private sector is doing. You know, on, on the government front, we obviously have a big screening infrastructure through our community healthcare workers, so 30,000 community healthcare workers deployed across the country. That is one of the biggest community healthcare workers across the, the globe, by the way. You know, not even the other Germans have that uh, level of penetration on community healthcare workers and screening infrastructure. So I think uh, our government has done an amazing job of getting out there and uh, screening. Um, and I think it, yeah, if there are any benefits, this was the one benefit to our pre-existing you know, TB and HIV you know, uh, you know, programs. Um, but once you've screened, you've got to be able to test. And I think you know, we do have some challenges in the public sector now in terms of you know, reagent and you know, test, testing capacity. And that, that really is a concern. And uh, you know, we're certainly seeing... Um, you know, some delays, uh, particularly out of the National Health Laboratory Service around uh, testing. Um, and that's not all South Africa's fault, by the way. We are largely reliant on getting the reagent in from uh, international, international markets. So lots of really good work, a big um, uh, you know, effort underway in you know, the, the public sector. We're probably falling a little bit behind, behind the curve, but still some time to, ca- to catch up there in contact tracing. On the private sector front, um, you know, businesses are really getting into gear now, particularly as of 1st of June. You know, so with Level 3 coming into effect, businesses are playing their role in screening you know, in particular and all the preventive actions in particular. On our last podcast, I said you know, the one thing that businesses and schools would need to do is move into their own contact tracing you know, infrastructure as well. So it's inevitable you are going to have a, an infection in your business at, at some stage. Um, it's just a matter of time. When you get that infection, it's an ability to bring in a, a sophisticated contact tracing team, isolate that individual, you know, figure out who that individual is you've been in contact with, and you know, get those people quarantined. You're then you know, playing your part not only in the national response, but also keeping your business your operations. And, you know, we refer to that as you're know, flattening the curve at a, at a business level. So this is a multi-pronged response, public sector, private sector, all working together around you know, one, one objective. 
Ron, a lot of what you've said makes, uh, will make people nervous when they're listening to this, given that it's already getting very real. We've had a 1,000 people dying now of COVID-19. How does one perhaps pre uh, prepare yourself for the wave that some people say is not coming, but clearly from the data that, that we're seeing from Johns Hopkins University and from what you're seeing within Discovery itself uh, is on its way? Yeah, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, Alec. Uh, the wave is definitely coming. The, the, uh, the upside on this, you know, from a South African perspective, and you know, looking at the global stats, is that a number of the cases are asymptomatic. You know, and what we're seeing in the epidemiological modeling is we're seeing all of the cases. And this, I think, is you know, an important differentiator. So the, new, the, the numbers you'll see reported on Johns Hopkins and the numbers you'll see reported on uh, yeah, the South Africa scorecard are proven cases. There is a wave on top of that that is asymptomatic cases that we will never know about. And you know, when the actuaries run their model, they run that on all of the cases. So it's important to understand the, the differential between you know, the, the two numbers. So, and this is the hot debate at the moment around how, what proportion of all infections are asymptomatic. And our actuaries are debating this, and we're looking at closely at research here globally. The reality is the number is somewhere between 40 and 70 percent asymptomatic. Now, if you've got a million infections, as quoted by the actuaries and uh, the epidemiologists, that means that anywhere between 40 and 70 percent of those are asymptomatic, right? So we'll never see those in the data. So I think that's important to calibrate on, on some of the numbers. I think the second thing that's really been a positive in, in South Africa is the case fatality rates. In other words, you know, the number of people that die um, that are, you know, are confirmed you're positive remains very low. Um, so even in the Western Cape, you know, the case fatality rate is um, just on two two and a half percent. So 800 people out of 32,000 people, two and a half percent is low by global standards. If you take, you know, for instance, um, you know, Sweden as an example, Sweden's case fatality rate is 10 percent. Belgium's case fatality rate is 16 percent. Um, yeah, so. We're still very, very low case, case fatality rates. And you know, in many respects, um, you know, we don't want to see a single death. You know, and uh, that, that is you know, something we must avoid at, at, at all costs. But you know, relatively speaking, we're in a much better position than Europe. And the, Europe was in particular in regards to mortality and the severity of the disease. And we certainly are seeing this cloud in the discovery statistics as well. So across the discovery base, very, very low um, case fatality rates, um, you know, reasonably low, very low your know, ICU admission rates. You know, so, um, And then, you know, of course, on the other side, we're seeing a high asymptomatic rates. So you know, we're in the, in the midst of a storm, but um, on the good side of the, the outcomes for the storm. Boyan Pancheski of uh, the Wall Street Journal joins us now from Berlin. Boyan, you guys published a fascinating story that we republished on Biz News about the experience that countries have had from reopening schools. Now, there's lots of concern about this in South Africa. As an overview, do we have reason to be worried that the infections of COVID-19 are going to pick up? Well, look. I think everyone's worried and it's just normal because uh, everyone's worried about their children, everyone's worried about their grandchildren. It's a highly contentious issue. 
But the countries in Europe that have actually reopened schools have only had good experiences for now. The first country to open, I think, to emerge from the lockdown and to reopen schools was Denmark. And I think that happened on the 15th of April. Essentially, they haven't had in Denmark an outbreak in a school. They haven't had a, any incidents of children transmitting the virus to each other or to adults. And that is pretty similar with the experience that other countries have had, such as Austria, Norway, for example, Germany, where I'm based. So it would appear that schools are actually pretty safe, at least up to a certain age. Now, that's the thing. You see, teenagers and adolescents seem to behave like adults with regards to COVID-19, i.e. they are able to get sick, they're able to pass on the disease to others, and there have been outbreaks in high schools. So this is really important to remember, because we're talking about sort of children up to 12 seem to be on the safe side. Children older than that, it's presumed that actually they need to take better care. So teenagers, high school students and university students, that's a completely different ballgame. Do the scientists have any theories about why this is? Yeah, as always, scientists have plenty of theories. None of them really 100% sort of proven, but it would appear that quite a few studies have shown that children up to the age of 10 really have very few or no receptors that this virus, the corona, the novel coronavirus, is using to enter the human body. So these receptors, they call them ACE2 receptors, they seem to be very scarce in the population of people under the age of 10. And subsequently, we haven't really had incidents of kids, young kids like that up to the age of 10, really getting ill, showing symptoms or passing on the disease to others. So there is a European Union body of experts that is looking into all these studies and all the research. And the coordinator of that body told me that he recommends for children up to 12 years of age to be allowed to go back to schools, primarily on the back of that theory that these kids are A, not really getting sick, and B, they're not transmitting the disease, which is really important. Now, there are other theories as well. Some theories basically assume that kids do get the virus, but they just don't really feel it. They have no symptoms. They're not aware of it. And because they have no symptoms, i.e. they don't cough, for example, they don't sneeze, they then don't really shed the virus and they don't infect others. So whichever theory is true, the, practice, the empirical evidence seems to show that kids up to the age of 10 or 12 are not really driving this epidemic. So interesting, the point that you made about the receptors, that ACE2 receptor. You'd presume that if this is so relevant and it, the point has been well made, then you'd have scientists or clinicians trying to find suppressors for an ACE2 receptor in people who have it, clearly people who are a little bit older than that. Is there any investigation on that front? Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that because we kind of need these receptors. For example, uh, once you do get ill and, and you have them, for example, in the lungs as well. So if you don't have enough of them, you have a 
more difficult course of the disease for many reasons. These things, these guys exist for a reason in the uh -huh. human body. So you can't really get rid of them as such. They are sort of a biological feature of the human body. But you do, obviously, in terms of treatment and therapy, people are definitely looking into how to prevent the virus from docking into these receptors and from entering the body. And I think there's an enormous amount of research being done by pharmaceutical companies and biotech firms and places like that. But we're yet to see some, some results in that domain. I think there's a lot of talk about trying to develop a drug to treat COVID-19. And obviously, there's a race to develop a vaccine to prevent it from happening in the first place. But we seem to have a long way to go to any of these things. Boyan, we're about to go into winter. Well, in fact, we're in winter in South Africa. And mm -hmm. that is the, the weather pattern is something that we're paying a lot of attention to. How is that developing? Or, or what do we know about this virus in colder versus warmer conditions? Well, we seem to be seeing some empirical evidence that the virus doesn't really spread well in the summer. Certainly here in Europe, the, the incidence of the virus has subsided drastically with the onset of warm weather. Now we are in sort of entering summer and less and less people are getting infected. The numbers are dropping across the board. Now, there is a debate why that is. I mean, one theory which seems to be consistently sort of taken as the most serious assumption by scientists is that this virus spreads really well indoors because it spreads by these little droplets that we release when we speak, when we shout, when we sing, when we cough, when we sneeze, you know, tiny little droplets come out of our mouths and our noses and the virus is kind of attached to these droplets that's how you infect someone so if you're in a obviously if you're out outdoors it's more difficult to do that because there is a air current you know there's wind and you don't really get that close to people necessarily indoors is a different story then there is another way that this virus seems to be transmitting and these are even tinier little particles called aerosols. They are smaller than the droplets, much smaller, and they are also released in a similar way, particularly through singing, actually, and, sound, and shouting, but also through coughing and perhaps heavy breathing as well. So essentially, when you're indoors and someone's ill and they are releasing these droplets or aerosols in the room, the droplets can remain sort of levitating for about 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, studies have shown, where the aerosols remain suspended in the air for about three hours even, perhaps more. So essentially, if you have one or two or more sick people in a room and they release these aerosols, then the room will be, so to say, contaminated. So there will be a danger of whoever gets into the room of inhaling these aerosols and sort of getting the virus into their lungs and, and perhaps getting sick. Now, that's a massive issue with the weather because when the, obviously when the weather is cold, people go indoors and there's a more opportunity for the virus to spread. There are also other studies showing that sunshine basically kills, dries and kills the virus. So the virus doesn't really thrive outdoors when the weather's nice, when it's dry and sunny. These are really interesting uh, developments that we're learning about this novel virus as it's come through. But the, the experiment in Sweden, how are the Europeans now viewing this? We saw something in the past few days that 
the chief epidemiologist in Sweden is saying he would have done things differently. That was a, a story in the journal earlier. How does the rest of Europe look at Sweden today? Well, it's very interesting because Sweden was basically, I think, the only Western country that didn't have a lockdown of any kind, really. Everything remained open. It's open to this day um, ever since the beginning of the pandemic. They had some minor, minor restrictions. For example, they asked restaurants and bars not to serve drinks at the actual bar, but to only serve at tables in order to avoid crowding. What else they did is they prescribed a certain sort of distance between tables in restaurants, but they never closed the restaurants or the bars for that matter. And perhaps most importantly, they banned gatherings of over 50 people. So only up to 50 people are legally allowed to gather in Sweden at this at this stage and for the past few months. Essentially, they've managed to, to stop or reduce the infection, to slow down the infection just by these simple rules. And I think just by the strength of the fact that people in Sweden seem to be disciplined as a population. So essentially, the guidelines were telling people to socially distance. There were not orders, there were not laws, there were not rules that needed to be followed. There were just voluntary guidelines, but people seem to have followed those guidelines because the infection rate dropped. I don't, I'm not sure that can be replicated in other countries because other countries have different mentalities and different approach to guidelines coming from the government. But what did happen in Sweden also is that they have a very, very high mortality rate, especially among the elderly, especially among the elderly who live in nursing homes, in care homes. So it's a mixed bag. I think most of Europe has sort of a lot of people who oppose the lockdowns because they have devastating economic consequences, praise Sweden for leaving the economy open and society open. But we're seeing now that the death rate is very high. It's much higher beyond comparison, higher than the neighbors, Norway or Denmark or Finland. And actually, per I think per one million inhabitants, they're number five in the whole world now. So it's, it's pretty bad in that regard. And the other thing is that the economy hasn't really been spared because Sweden is an export-oriented nation. And because of all of these markets went into lockdown or are just sort of contracting, there's no demand. People are not spending. They're not investing. They're not buying so the Swedish economy is suffering like any other economy. In fact, uh, unemployment is expected to go up to almost 11%, which, which is huge for, for Sweden, one of the richest, most affluent countries in the world. So it's really a mixed bag. I think they retain their freedoms. That you can say for them, for sure. They never were coerced to stay at home and uh, restaurants kept open and people had the choice of going out and having dinner. But that didn't really save the economy much. And certainly didn't stop the mortality rate from, from surging. Do they not wear masks in Sweden? They do not wear masks. In fact, the, the official recommendation is not to wear masks, which is quite controversial. People have argued about it, but the government is sticking to its guns. They think masks are not necessary because essentially they say if you feel symptoms, if you feel you're getting ill, you need to stay at home. There's no need to wear a mask because you should stay at home and not go out and not infect anyone. Now, that, obviously, that makes sense, but there is another issue with so-called asymptomatic patients of COVID-19, i.e. people who do get the disease and are able to pass it on, but they are not experiencing any symptoms, so they don't really know they're sick, and that is obviously a problem. So if these people would wear a mask, they wouldn't be infecting anyone, but if they think they're healthy and going around without masks, they are 
in danger of perhaps infecting someone. There's science is not clear on on whether asymptomatic people are actually infectious and to what degree they are infections. I mean, some people even dispute that there are fully asymptomatic patients because they think the symptoms are actually mild and people might notice them, such as a sore throat or a runny nose or a headache or whatever. But so that science is not very clear. But what is clear, since you mentioned the mask, is that all the countries where masks are basically universally worn, such as South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and uh, Hong Kong, the autonomous territory of China, uh, in all of these places, the, you know, they managed to beat the epidemic. They have been extremely successful. They are kind of world leaders in dealing with this virus. And part of the reason experts will say, and or some experts will say, is that everyone wears a mask. And if everyone wears a mask, then nobody is infecting anyone else. Dr. Joe Barnes is a senior lecturer emeritus at the Department of Global Health at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, Dr. Barnes, thank you for joining us. Now, what what do we know about this disease, COVID-19? It's been with us five or six months now. What are we absolutely certain about with it? I just want to emphasize that it is not a new virus. Novel is not the same as new. It's been on the world for a long time, circulating in animals. It is newly invaded human beings. So it's a novel virus for for humans, but it's been uh, um, uh, around for a long time. And the, the home of most coronaviruses are bats. They carry a huge number of them. And they, they, they live in some kind of a balance with the viruses because if the viruses killed them, the virus would lo- lose the host. So the virus is like a passenger for the, for the bats. But, and here comes some of the unknowns. It looks as if it jumped to another intermediate animal that we don't know which it is. And then from there onwards infected human beings. So for us, it is a novel infectious agent but for for the virus it's been around for some time and that's why we are floundering because uh, um, we we have yet to learn the full power of this and it is not an insignificant enemy it's interesting that some people think it is insignificant we've had all kinds of progress progress the nations about uh, the economy shouldn't have been closed down to the degree that it has because actually not that many extra people are dying. What's your thoughts on that? Well, you know, we've always had Flat Earth Society members as well. That doesn't make them right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's the fact that somebody finds it threatening to admit that this is new and not only new but but highly infectious and therefore dangerous makes some people go back into denial and many of those people show some uh, um, symptoms of oh it's not so bad it's just a really bad flu there are very very clear indications not only from symptomology and clinical signs and all of that but also from excess deaths in all the countries where it has been recorded that it is not merely a bad year for seasonal flu it is very de- definitely a, 
a different disease and it has we are learning every day to my horror also the long-term sequelae that we call the long-term consequences in some people of months if not years of debilitation and um, damage that this virus does so presumably the best thing is not to get it if at all possible Yes, uh, I have to be, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic to tell you that sooner or later we will highly likely, all of us, brush up against it. But the hope is that, and it has been demonstrated with other viruses over, and this is now a much longer term, over many years, most viruses tend to weaken not go uh, uh, into some kind of killer mode. As I explained, it's not in its long-term interest to kill the host. So it, in order for its own survival, it tends to weaken, but that we need to get better treatment and vaccination long before that process kicks in. So sooner or later, all of us will brush up against it. Now, here's the hopeful thing, is a vast majority of people, I see the figures coming out yesterday and today, in some populations, up to 70% of people who get it won't show symptoms. The problem with that, in other words, please note that we are dealing, when I quote the figures, only about those who we know of who showed symptoms. The people who are symptomless or who thought they had a light cold and it went away again are still carriers. They still distribute the disease. So it is certainly a, a, a problem for us that we are not able to identify in our South African population what the size of that shape of the iceberg under the surface of the sea. How big it is, how many who are likely in there. And because of the huge backlog, over 100,000 test cases now, the data we are dealing with today is in some cases up to three weeks old. I mean, the test was taken three, two to three weeks ago. So we keep on being behind in the curve of this thing. because our, And now the new rule is, only if you're over 55 and with comorbidity will they even test you because they can't handle the tests anymore. So we really are managing this in the dark. Epidemiologists are uh, a very specialized group of scientists. What, what, tell us exactly what you would do when there isn't a COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs> Sadly, I don't count my toes. <laughs> I, my particular interest before this burst over my head was actually waterborne diseases and water pollution and lack of sanitation in the dense settlements and all of that. So um, we, there are a vast number of, of analyses to be done to track trends to, for early warning systems, just, just to give you one idea to warn where things are going off the rails. It's not, it's not, we are not popular people. <laughs> by, by, no, by no stretch of the imagination does anybody like to see an epidemiologist walk into a meeting <laughs> because <laughs> we tend to poke holes <laughs> in things. Um, so yes, there's a lot of, particularly in a, in a, in a third world or a developing country, there's a lot of, 
of tracking that needs to be done to warn so that we can use our scarce resources at the uh, uh, optimally to the best of our ability. There comes a time where data and findings and things like that go over into policy. There you leave the epidemiologist behind, and that's where the value systems get added. The value decisions get made that they, they, they do or they don't to embrace what they have heard. So if I understand correctly, epidemiologists track diseases or the spread of diseases, and your, your focus will be to try to identify those diseases before they spread and to suggest ways that stop them from spreading. So if we take that to its logical conclusion, we know COVID-19 has spread through saliva or droplets uh, or what do they call it now, aerosols, they're even saying in, in uh, Europe. So wearing a mask surely has got to be almost obligatory. Yes, um, I've just seen from, from Britain, I think it was, a study that they have done that surgical masks, of course, or the, the ones that really exclude uh, um, the, the most of the aerosols, is of course the most effective. But even a cloth mask can reduce the, the, the uh, um, chance of getting disease down to about 1 or 2%, which does mean that especially if you if you clean it properly and you wear it properly and and wear it all the time where you should, it does mean that that yet again the deniers say you know uh, uh, social distancing and um, wearing masks and if you can wear gloves and washing your hands is just so much poppycock. It isn't. It is really actually surprisingly effective. The crisis for us is that. It takes one person to transgress the rules for the, sp for the spread to run. So it is unfortunately something that you need buy-in for. It's been very interesting to see the experiences in countries where there's almost a culture of wearing masks. Often as, as Westerners, you would be surprised to see people from Asia, from Taiwan or South Korea or Japan or even China, uh, when you do engage with them or see them on aeroplanes, they invariably have a mask on. And we we would think that's overkill. But now there was a very good reason for them doing that in the first place, and it must have helped perhaps in the reduction of the spreading of COVID-19. It started with SARS, the original SARS outbreak in 2009. They learned their lesson then, and they've always after that been really very um, hygiene conscious. And it really, really helped them. And the population having been trained and never lost the lesson, which is another <laughs> important point, it had been reinforced in the meanwhile, even though there was no disease X to drive it. Um, uh, it was very easy for them to slip back into that kind of behavior. <laughs> Many countries are slowly starting to reopen their economies, but not all are as fortunate as New Zealand, who has declared the country to be free of COVID-19, and even contact sports like rugby is restarting.
In South Africa, where school children returned to school this week, the challenges of reopening became clear as mask wearing, separate seating, long rows to get into the school made an ordinary school day quite difficult and drawn out. In Spain, that registered more than 27,000 deaths, the bars and cafes are starting to reopen, and the country is planning to open its borders on the 1st of July. But in Madrid, the capital of Spain, where 9,000 people died, it had been one of Europe's hardest-hit cities. Bloomberg's Jeanette Newman reports that the city is both heartbroken and giddy. I cursed that sound every morning for about six years. A nearby shop owner rolling up the metal shutters covering his storefront. A screeching start to every day. But for two months during the confinement in the center of Madrid, where I live, the mornings were silent. So were the afternoons and evenings. The screeching started again about two weeks ago. The sound still grates on me but I have a bit of a soft spot for it now. It's become a daily reminder that the city and the broader Spanish economy are coming back to life. Spain's government is gradually lifting one of Europe's strictest lockdowns in four stages, province by province, and in 14-day increments. It's as if those of us living in Spain had been forced to go on a fast for two months and now we're slowly reintroducing some of life's pleasures. First, a bicycle ride outside, then visits with friends and family, eating and dining out, eventually travel. In Madrid, we're in the second week of what's known as phase one. Most noticeably, that means Madrileños have been allowed to drink and dine outside at bars and restaurants, the first time since mid-March. The sounds of the city are slowly returning. That's the Sunday before we entered phase one. It's 9.45 p.m. on the Plaza Santana, a square in central Madrid. And this is the next night in the same spot and the same time, but now with outdoor seating on the terraces at 50% capacity. We're also allowed to gather with up to 10 people at home. That's meant reunions with friends for the first time in months. I visited friends for dinner on Friday, our first gathering since March. Hello. Hello. I get that. We're in. The shared meals have been a welcome respite after the long confinement. Bueno, chicos, con champán, eh? This is a celebration. <laughs> The overpowering feeling, though, is one of whiplash. Spain is in national mourning for the more than 27,000 people who have died during the pandemic. And the country, along with the rest of the world, is emerging into the most severe downturn in living memory. Bloomberg Economics expects Spain and Italy to be among the hardest hit countries in the world this year, suffering economic contractions of 11 and 13%, respectively. That's fueled anger and despair. Some in Spain have channeled their frustration into a nightly cacophony that's known as a casarolada. That's the banging together of pots and pans, a common form of protest here. Every night for the past several weeks, 
people have been making noise from their windows, balconies, and local plazas at 9 p.m. They're demonstrating against Spain's government, a coalition between the center-left socialists and the far-left Podemos party. Protesters say the government responded slowly to the onset of the pandemic and that the emergency economic measures have been too little, too late. Now that we're allowed to gather with friends, many people seem to prefer to be outside their homes in the evening. So the intensity of the casroladas has eased in recent days. But the frustrations and worries haven't. Oh, I have like a hundred messages that I have to check. <laughs> like two hours and then it's like it's better not to I know it's better not be to away. Ophelia Marin opened three of her seven restaurants in Madrid last week. At this stage, only outdoor seating is allowed and only at 50 percent capacity. She says the authorities are focusing too much on the minutia. They're missing the existential threat facing many of Madrid's restaurants and bars. We spoke at one of her restaurants, La Muca del Carmen. In one of the locations, we had um, 23 tables, okay? So now you have to cut by half. 23 by half, it's 11 and a half. So okay, we said we're gonna put 12. You know, Rounding it's a big, up, right it's a, exactly, it's a big plaza. We have space, it's beautiful, not many cars, not many people. So the police comes and they removed one of them. So they had, they had definitely counted exactly how many you yes, were allowed. Yes, but doesn't make any sense for who? What good that makes? Spain also requires restaurants to keep tables as socially distanced two meters apart. That's about six and a half feet. Ophelia says the number seems arbitrary. In France, social distance is one meter. In Italy, it's one meter in some regions and 1.8 in others. In Germany, 1.5 meters. The World Health Organization says one. Spain's government says the restrictions on occupancy and distance between patrons are necessary to ensure the country avoids new outbreaks. Restaurant managers say they support safety measures, but they say the current restrictions make it impossible to generate enough revenue to cover the cost of reopening. That's one of the reasons that more than two-thirds of the bars and restaurants in Madrid that are allowed to open their outdoor terraces have remained shuttered. The average bar size in Spain is around 100 square meters, roughly 1,000 square feet. The country's small, intimate eateries are part of its old world charm, but they're a distinct disadvantage in a socially distanced economy. Ophelia says she's worried that even when Madrid's restaurants can start serving inside, revenue will still suffer. Social distance, I think, is going to be till, you know, phase three, four, who knows. But social distance, I think, is going to stay for a while, and what, which that kills us. One option would be to step up online food deliveries, but that's not as common in Spain as in some other countries. Some restaurants have tried to pivot quickly to e-commerce, only to realize the commissions on existing platforms can be as much as 35%. That's untenable in an industry where margins are, on average, around 15%. Spain was the second most visited country in the world last year. Visitors are able to return starting in July. But hotel managers say they don't expect to get back to the glory days for at least several years. 
Spain's islands and beachside resorts are already receiving reservations for the truncated summer season. Many hotel managers in Madrid, though, say they're likely to remain shuttered through September. They won't be able to fill their rooms without the conferences and business meetings that normally bring people in July and August. Juan Luis de Lucas Martín is an exception. The hotel Claridge that he manages is among the few open in the city. The experience has been okay. Occupancy has been, well, horrible. Spaniards still aren't allowed to travel between provinces, with some exceptions. Those who've booked rooms at the Claridge have come to Madrid to see their doctors or lawyers or, in some cases, meet up with a loved one. I understand all my colleagues who have decided not to open until September because there will be nothing. We're open and nearly all the hotels in Madrid are closed and our record on the best day has only been 18 rooms booked. If more hotels were open, it would be absolute disaster because there's no demand. That's 18 out of 114 total rooms. Amid so many uncertainties, one thing seems clear. The V-shaped recovery that economists had anticipated for many countries now seems unlikely. In Spain and elsewhere, it will be more of a slog than a snapback. Jeanette Newman, Bloomberg News. South African investors who are sitting in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic with numbers still with the number of cases still rising, can take comfort from signs elsewhere in the world that the pandemic is easing in many other countries. In Europe, that were hit hard by the epidemic with tens and thousands of deaths, their economies are starting to reopen. The chatter at cafes, tavernas and bars are returning. Even the United Kingdom, that has officially registered more deaths from COVID-19 than any other European country, is finally starting to see some light. David Harrow from Harris Associates, the CIO of International Equity, says Europe is definitely beginning to see normalized light at the end of this dark economic tunnel. What I think will propel these and awaken these valuations is just through the economic recovery as people get back to work and as economies reopen. And I think this is the real story. Europe came into this a bit earlier. Remember Italy and Spain. Um, generally speaking, Europe came into this uh, COVID-19 crisis a little earlier and, and you know, shut down pretty hard. And they're kind of starting to open in many ways earlier. I mean, you see Italy's opening today and uh, almost completely opening. And the German kids went back to school, I think, in April. And so you're beginning to see normalization that will be the light at the end of this dark uh, economic tunnel. And that, to me, is what will awaken some of these value stories as it becomes evident that these companies made it through the storm. Now, the icing on the cake will be if the European Union could ever get their act together and if, for instance, the Europeans and the British could ever decide on a trade agreement. This will be icing on the cake. Both of these have some potential, but I think that these things are not needed for this recovery to really take off. What's needed for the stock market recovering Europe to take off is for the economies to reopen and the light at the end of the economic tunnel, and I think that will be enough to... Um, shine some light on these values that I've been talking about. 
David, just real quick here, I'm wondering how much your outlook for Europe depends on its relationship with China remaining at least where it is now and not deteriorating further amid a backdrop of rising U.S.-China tensions and sort of pressure that they take some sort of stance here. Yeah, this this is an important question because the Europeans as well as the Americans, uh, uh, you know, the Europe, Europe is a big exporting nation. Germany, Italy, France, they're big exporting nations, and one of their big exporting clients is China, as well as the U.S. and as well as the U.K. And so these economic relationships, the stability of these economic relationships, are going to be important you know, as these economies recover. So I do think that is an important factor to watch. Um, the U.S. actually, it's a little bit less so. We're, the U.S. is actually a little less dependent on China for its exports. Certain sectors are very dependent. If you look at, like, Boeing as an example and the, and the egg sector. But for the most part, I think um, the exports that are most at risk for a destabilized China, the, the Europeans, this is something you have to watch. This has been episode 44 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.